Good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to the remarks to our Easter service, whether you're watching us on Facebook or in on Zoom or at Community Center. A great warm welcome as we celebrate Easter this morning as a church. And if I were to ask you what Easter is all about, or maybe what your friends or family think Easter is about, I'm sure you'd get a mixture of answers. For some people, maybe Easter is all about the food. Remember that? Hot cross buns. I don't know if you like those, but they're great toasted. Maybe you've been looking forward to opening one of these later. Chocolate Easter eggs. Yum. What's not to like? Those are all part of Easter, the lovely things we get to eat. Maybe you're looking forward to a big Easter meal in a minute. But of course, there's a lot more to Easter than that. And that's what I want to do this morning is just unpack some of the the deeper meaning behind Easter. Let me read a few verses just to start from 1 Corinthians 15. This is a great chapter on the resurrection, which I hope if you don't have time right now, but some point during today or this week, that you are able to read through the whole chapter because it's so fundamental to us because it talks about the resurrection of Christ. But I'm just going to start with a few verses, 1 Corinthians 15 and the first five verses. This is what Paul says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Paul says he wants to remind the Corinthians. And that's what I want to do this morning is just remind us of some of those truths that are wrapped up in the Easter story. These truths that Paul says we need to take our stand on, that we need to hold on to firmly. So I'm not probably going to say anything new that you, if you've been a Christian a while that you wouldn't have heard before, but it's always great to have those reminders because we have to hold on to these things firmly. And if you are a newer Christian or maybe thinking about what it means to be a Christian, I hope this morning your eyes and minds are opened to just the significance of Easter, that it's so much more than just a story about Christ rising, again, important as that is. And I hope for all of us, whether we're new Christians or old Christians, that it leads to a deeper understanding and a deeper trust in God because of all that he accomplished at the cross and at the resurrection in Christ Jesus. Now, I also have a smaller challenge for the younger people. And as I go through the passage this morning, well, go through the talk this morning, there's going to be a verse which is at the heart of Easter. And I want to see if you can work out what that verse is. Unfortunately, I couldn't quite fit it all in in my Easter PowerPoint, which I'm going to use this morning. We're going old school, I'm afraid. I didn't want to look like a YouTuber. So I'm doing this. This is what I'm calling my Easter PowerPoint to help us explore these great truths about Easter. Now, of course, I'm sure most of us would recognize that as we've seen and read those various stories that we celebrate this morning, Christ's death and resurrection. And if there's one message that comes out of Easter, it's this. Let me take off my first bit here. The message of Easter is this, that we are saved by God's grace through faith in his son. I hope you can read that. If you can't, you might have to put yourself on speak of you or zoom in your phone a bit if you're on a phone. But we're saved by God's grace through faith 
in his son. That's the Easter message in a nutshell, if you like. But what I think is even as Christians, sometimes we think about salvation as maybe it's, it's a destination, a journey that we're moving towards. One day when I die, I'll go to heaven. That's what it means to be saved. And there's actually so much more to Easter as we're going to see. And so I want to start with perhaps something that's really one of those most basic fundamental aspects about Easter. Let me remove another bit here. Can. This is one of the most important things we can learn from Easter. Jesus Christ is our substitute. That is so basic and fundamental to understanding Easter. Now, you may be thinking, well, what does that mean for Jesus to be our substitute? Well, you know, in sports, in football, the sub comes on when either the player's tired or perhaps he's not playing well or he's got injured. And so the substitute comes on and takes their place and does what they can no longer do, play the game. And that gives us a little glimpse of how Jesus is our substitute. I don't know if you can read that, but it says there he's our substitute in two ways. He lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we should have died. Let me say a little bit more about both of those. If we're honest and truthful with ourselves, none of us can live as we should, even by our own standards. We can't go by a, a day, a minute, an hour without thinking something we shouldn't have thought or saying something we shouldn't have said or doing something we shouldn't have done or not doing what we actually should have done. None of us can do that, even with our own standards. And when we try then and live by God's standards, it's even more impossible. Sorry, I'm going to keep a football analogy going here. But if I were to ask you to kick a football in one go from here to Cheltenham, none of you would manage. Although if you've seen the guys shooting on a Friday night, you might think some of them have a chance. But of course, none of us could get there. None of us could make it in one shot. It's impossible. And it's no use comparing ourselves with someone else. It's no use saying, well, I got further than so-and-so, or I'm doing better than him, because that's the wrong standard. The standard we have to measure up to is God's standard. And God's standard is perfection. And we simply cannot meet that. The Bible calls our failure to live up to God's standard sin. And it affects all of us, every single person that's alive today. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's no exceptions to that. None of us can live as we should. And so Jesus came as our substitute and lived the life we couldn't live. He is the only exception. He became our substitute. And we were reminded when we were thinking about his death on Good Friday that actually three different times, three different people declare this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. No sin whatsoever, not in his actions, not in his words, not in his thoughts. He was truly perfect. And not only did he do nothing wrong, he also did all the good he was supposed to. He did the Father's will perfectly. And God approved of him. We read that in Acts 2.22, where Peter, preaching to the crowds at Pentecost after Easter, after Jesus had risen again, says to them, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
Jesus lived a life approved by God. They could see that with the miracles he'd done. They knew about it. They knew that God approved of him. He was a perfect man in every way. And that's really important for us because we know from the Old Testament law that the only way God could deal with our sin and the only way we could receive forgiveness is through a sacrifice. And that that sacrifice, according to the law, had to be perfect. It had to be a sacrifice without spot or blemish. And so because Jesus lived that perfect life, he could become that sacrifice on our behalf. He was qualified to be our substitute and to live perfectly. So if he was a substitute in that sense, living the life we couldn't live, then he also became a substitute by dying in our place. God on the cross punished Jesus instead of us for our sins. And Jesus became the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice covers over our sins and turns aside God's wrath against us, against all that's evil. He took the punishment that we deserve. As I read in those first few verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says that it's of first importance that Christ died for our sins. The most central aspect of Easter is the cross where Jesus Christ becomes our substitute in his perfect life and his death on our behalf. And it's a gift, a gift of God's grace, as we said there. None of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. We receive it by faith. Now, we could carry on talking about this in more detail, but I want to go on to some more things that we receive at Easter. Jesus not only takes our place and wins forgiveness of our sins, but he also does something else. He brings about reconciliation between us and God. That's the amazing news of Easter. Now, reconciliation is needed where two people or two groups of people are estranged. They're at enmity with each other, perhaps even at war. And that's what God works for us. We, we can think of human situations where that's happened. You think of a country like South Africa where they went through that process of truth and reconciliation under Nelson Mandela and the, those divided communities, the white, black and colored, have come back together to be one nation. They were enemies and now they're reconciled, at least to a certain extent. Well, you may be thinking, well, I'm OK. I'm maybe not best friends with God, but I'm certainly not his enemy. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Romans 5.10 says it describes us as enemies of God. That's the reality of our sin and our sinful nature. It puts us at enmity with God. Our sinful nature is entirely opposed to God. And as long as we continue to live away from God, we are his enemies. But the great news is, the good news is that as that verse goes on to say, that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Jesus's death brings about our reconciliation to God. That's an amazing truth. And that tells us something really important. It tells us that, as I said at the beginning, becoming a Christian is not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about a relationship here and now, a relationship with God through his son. That's what we're invited into. That's what Christ won for us on the cross. So to think that being a Christian is just about getting into heaven is to miss out on so much. It's like thinking that getting married is about the wedding day. 
wonderful as that is, it's not all about that. It's actually about the relationship of loving union that follows. And that's what the cross opens up to us, a relationship of loving union with God through Christ as his spirit dwells in us. That's truly good news for us. Now, let me go on and think about another aspect. If we've been reconciled, we also in Christ receive our redemption. That's a word probably we don't use a lot. What do we mean by it? Well, forgive me, I'm going to add another football analogy here. Sometimes when someone's playing a football match, they may score an own goal or something like that. that lets the team down. And what happens if, if before the game finishes, they manage, say, to score the winner? Then sometimes the commentators will say, well, so-and-so has redeemed himself. He's kind of made amends for his mistake. Actually, you had a good example of that on Wednesday night. I don't know if you saw the match between England and Poland, where poor old John Stones committed an absolute blunder and it led to a goal. But before the game ended, he was able to set up the winner. So we could say he redeemed himself. That's a little analogy. But of course, we can't redeem ourselves. We try, but we cannot. We get a much better picture in the Old Testament law. If a person fell into poverty, had no money, they had absolutely no way of surviving, they could sell themselves into service of another family. And so they would serve that family basically as a slave, but all their needs would be looked after. But by law, any of their family could come along and buy them out of slavery. slavery. They'd pay a set price and they could be bought back into freedom. That's what redemption means. It means to be bought back into freedom, redeemed from slavery. And the greatest story in the Old Testament of that is, of course, the Exodus, where God sees his people in slavery to Egypt. They're oppressed. They're helpless. They cannot escape. They're burdened. And he sends Moses, doesn't he, and frees them and brings them into a new land, a promised land where they experience freedom. That's at the heart of redemption. God acting on our behalf to break the slain, the chains of slavery. That's what God has done for us. We were captives to sin, oppressed by the enemy, helpless and unable to escape in fear of death, enslaved to sin. And on the cross, God delivers us from that captivity. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The blood he shed on the cross as he was whipped and beaten and those those nails were driven through his hands. That blood shed as he dies on our behalf. That's the price God pays to buy us back out of the slavery of sin. Jesus' death on the cross broke those bonds and means that we can now live in freedom. Excuse me. So we've been <coughs> bought back. We've been redeemed. But more than that, we can also experience justification. Another big theological word. What on earth does that mean? Well, we remember we've already said that Jesus took our place as our substitute. He's paid the penalty for our sins. So to be justified means that God no longer holds those against us. He now says, you're in right standing with me. You're not guilty anymore of all the sins you've done, even though you've done them. You're now declared to be not guilty, declared to be innocent, not because of our goodness or our hard work, 
but because of Christ's perfect life and his sacrifice. We're now free from guilt, made right with God. And because he's the supreme judge, the one we have to give an account to, we can have confidence because we've already been declared innocent. What an amazing thought. We're put in right standing with God because Christ paid for our sins. And the best news is that this is totally dependent on him. Romans 3, 28 says that a person is justified not by working hard, not by being good, not by trying your best. How? By faith, not by living according to God's law. And Paul earlier in that same chapter says that we've all been justified freely by his grace. What amazing grace that we're made right with God. That's what we celebrate at Easter. That's a huge, amazing gift we've received, our justification. If being justified wasn't enough, if Christ as our substitute reconciling us to God and redeeming us wasn't enough, then also we have now received adoption, adoption into the family of God. Galatians 4, 6, 7 says that, that we're children, we're called children. And so God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, Paul and says, but a child. And since you're a child, God has also made you an heir. God doesn't just redeem us and buy us back to be slaves and servants. He redeems us to bring us into the family of God. And isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit cries out, not just father, but Abba father, that term of intimacy of, of a child with their dad, Abba father, our holy God, our awesome holy God looks on us as his children, his children in whom he's pleased as he was with his own son, because he's adopted us into his family. And so then we receive all the rights of children. We're heirs. And I think the most amazing thing about this, one of the most, for me at least, encouraging verses in the Bible, Hebrews 2.11, is that Jesus is now no longer ashamed. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We're his brothers and sisters. That's what Christ has done on the cross. He's won our adoption. He's done all the paperwork, if you like. He's brought us into the family and we can have that status as children of God, dearly loved by the Father. Now, that's been a real whirlwind tour, and we could have said so much more about each of these. But these are all wrapped up in the Easter message. And of course, it has centered around the cross and rightly so. But as we saw in that video, there is another hugely important event that we celebrate this morning. I just need to grab another PowerPoint slide. Hopefully you're going to see that. Still on the screen, good, I think. Just, of course, this morning, the big event that we truly celebrate on Easter Sunday is the empty tomb. Just as the angel said, he's not here. He is risen. As we heard Peter and John in that video debating back and forth, this is the crucial message of Easter. He is not here he is risen. We celebrate above all else this morning that empty tomb, a risen savior. Why is that so important? Well, the resurrection shows that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the sinless son of God. 
And that means that we can have full confidence that he has won all those things for us through his death. Because he rose again, we know God accepted his sacrifice when he took our place as our substitute. Because he rose again, we know he has brought reconciliation for us through his blood. Because he rose again, we know he's defeated sin and death when he redeemed us. And because he rose again, we know that he truly did live a righteous life. That was the proof. And so his righteousness works our justification. And because he rose again, he's opened that new and living way for us to join as his adopted brothers and sisters into the presence and family of God. That passage I began with, 1 Corinthians 15, again, read it today if you can, ends, or towards the end, Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus's resurrection means that death and sin have been defeated. Sorry, my light's playing up. I'll put this one on. And Jesus's resurrection means that we can share in that victory. We don't just have to watch on and say that was great. It's now our victory together. We no longer have to be in chains to sin or afraid of death because we worship a risen savior. At Easter then, we have so many reasons to celebrate, so many reasons to worship this morning our living God, our living savior. But let me close with a few challenges and I'll try and be quick here. If we've been reconciled, we've been reconciled to live to reach others. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 20, Paul tells them, yes, you've been reconciled through Christ. Then he says, actually, you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on to say, God has committed to us a message of reconciliation. We've been given a ministry and message. And that message is be reconciled to God. We haven't been saved to sit around, but to live to reach others, to invite them to know God, to invite them to put their faith in Jesus Christ, our substitute, our savior. That's our job, if you like, now as those who are reconciled to work for the reconciliation of others. We've also been redeemed, redeemed to live obediently. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19 reminds us that God redeemed us not with perishable things like silver and gold, valuable as those are, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then he says, because of that, Peter says, you should live your lives in reverent fear. We've been redeemed to live obediently to God. The redemption we have cost an immeasurable sacrifice, the sacrifice of the precious blood of Christ. How awful it would be to treat that lightly as we often do. And so Peter says, live out your lives in reverent fear. Live in obedience because of the cost of our redemption. We've also been justified to live righteously. You know, we could say, well, I've been given the gift of justification. I've been declared innocent already. Doesn't matter. I can go and do what I like now. God's going to forgive me. 
Paul actually tells the Romans in chapter six in his letter to them, he says, that is a terrible idea. We've been justified to live righteously. 1 John 2, 29 says that since he is righteous, that if we're born of him, then we also ought to do what is right. So the calling we have is to live out our justification. We do right now not to be justified, but because we already are justified. And of course, we will never get it perfectly. But that needs to be our desire and our goal to live out our justification. We've been called to live righteously. And if we've been adopted into the family of God, then we've been adopted to live in a new family, the church. That's who is our new family. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what we're called to as family. We're called to show that we're in the family through living in loving relationships together. This is a wonderful picture of what Easter is all about, the death and the resurrection of Christ in which he reconciles us to God, he redeems us, and he brings our justification and our adoption. And I'm sure the younger ones, if you've been watching, have worked out that the heart of Easter is this verse, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Easter is fundamentally about God's love for the world. And if we're now in his family, then we must share that love with others and with one another. Let's pray.